since the beginning of time, or at least since we have the written narrative, the stories of the beginning of time, humanity has been engaged in a search for meaning. Story, music, visual art, poetry, all narrate humanity's desire to have an answer to the question of like, why am I here? For what purpose do I, do we exist? And when we begin to pay careful attention to those stories, a theme arises. The theme that arises is this tension between joy and struggle. And it seems over the course of the eras of humanity's existence that as we engage in this search, as we engage in this process, it is as if the universe demands to know, like, are you for joy or are you for struggle? Which side of the dividing line do you sit on? In the middle of the 18th century, that story emerges again in a slightly different way with the emergence of Jeremy Bentham and then um, his disciple, John Stuart Mill. Bentham and Mill engage in the creation of a social, political philosophy for living called utilitarianism. The basic tenet of utilitarianism is this idea that human action, all human action, or at the very least, intentional, good human action should be in the direction of providing happiness or well-being or flourishing for the greatest number possible of human beings. And in this trajectory, we see emerge what we now today would call like liberal social politics. Bentham and John Stuart Mill are sort of the, the grandfather and father of the way that we think about classical liberalism within the context of our culture. They are birthed out of utilitarianism, for example, is like the women's rights movement. You know, these political movements and these social movements meant to provide good or well-being or happiness for the culture at large. There is within us humanity, the way that we have told our stories, the way that we have created art, the way that poets have written poetry, there is this struggle between joy, there is this tension between joy and struggle, and Bentham and John Stuart Mill list toward the side of joy, of course. Now, the peculiarity, and this is not necessarily relevant for the preaching of this sermon, but I'm going to share it anyway, 
The, the peculiarity is if you were to go to Google and you were to type in John Stuart Mill, and rather than just like hitting select, you were going to hit images, like get a picture of him. John Stuart Mill is one of the most severe looking human beings I have ever seen in my entire life. And he approaches the pursuit of well-being and human flourishing with such an intensity that he's a bit ironic in the way that he writes and ultimately the way that he embodies his life. So there is this side of us that is hungry for joy, for happiness, for well-being, for flourishing. And yet, and yet, each of us knows that as Tupac Shakur says, the struggle is real. On the other side of this pursuit of an understanding of, of the meaning of life, that directs ourselves in the trajectory of, of happiness, of well-being, and flourishing, there is this other trajectory where we pursue an understanding of that basic question of why I am here through the process of struggle itself. It's how we get phrases in colloquial wisdom like grist for the mill that experience of suffering that I engaged was grist for the mill. It helped me grow and have a deeper understanding of who I am. Now, particularly in this culture in which we sit right now, even if you're visiting, but those of you who live here have the privilege of living here, you know that we list to the side of struggle. Any constituency of people who purposefully and regularly put themselves in a competitive situation with the forces of nature know that the struggle is, in fact, real. We subject ourselves to sleet and snow and cold rain and wild animals and and. Um, accelerated descents or down snowy mountains for the purpose of understanding who we are and cultivating meaning in our lives. There is, in the parlance of our culture, a description of struggle itself that we call type two fun. <laughs> Do you know this phrase? Oh, Jimmy, it was amazing. There we were, perched on the top of a rock, this cliff, unable to see a way forward because the, th the fog was so thick and the snow was blowing sideways that we didn't know whether we were going to live or we were going to die. It was amazing. <laughs> Those people list toward the side of struggle, no doubt. Are you for joy or are you for struggle? The world seems to demand to know of us. Now, from the Hebrew scriptures this morning, we have the beginning of one of the most beautiful tales in all of the story from Genesis to Revelation. It is most, for the most part, the story of Jacob. 
But we have at its very beginning a nativity story, a story first of parents, Isaac and Rebecca, then of a mom, Rebecca herself, seeking some sort of understanding of what is going on inside her body. She's prayed for pregnancy. Isaac has prayed for pregnancy. That which she longed for has finally arrived, and yet there is this discomfort, this struggle that is happening between her. And these two children emerge from the womb in a relatively glorious way. First, Esau comes out of the womb in this beautiful moment of chance as they are moving around in the womb together. And by virtue of the fact that he's born just maybe 120 seconds from his brother Jacob, he assumes this position of heir. Jacob holding on to his brother's heel as he exits the womb is characterized as the spare. So we have the heir and we have the spare. And then the story, somewhat outrageously and beautifully, begins to narrate this fabulous tale around stereotypes. It describes Esau as hairy, as if the hair on one's body makes one more manly, more virile, more listing toward the, the, the attributes of being a leader. He's an outdoorsman, a hunter. He's strong, and he's favored by his father. And this description, this somewhat pejorative description that we have of Jacob is absolutely fabulous and really comical if you take yourselves out of the sense of like, oh, this is sacred scripture and it's supposed to be serious. But it describes Jacob as hairless and liking to spend his time in tents. <laughs> in a generation previous, we would have described Jacob as a mama's boy. It is this marvelous birth of a story of struggle. And these two brothers embody somewhat unconsciously either side of this tension in which we live as human beings, especially human beings emotionally and spiritually oriented to understanding. It is that Esau himself, we would describe Esau as blissfully unaware. So we put Esau on the joy side, the bliss side, the happiness side of this struggle. He somewhat imprudently surrenders his birthright in order to have a full stomach after a hard day of being outside. And then Jacob is characterized as somewhat conniving, somewhat smart, but really more street smart than book smart, conniving with his, with his mother in order to steal this position of leadership, this primary position in the family role that, as the story is told, God has already ordained Jacob to take. The, the, the elder will be subservient to the younger 
the nativity story tells us. We as human beings sit curiously between this, this tension between joy and struggle. And then as the story moves forward, it narrates Jacob's life, and we're going to have a chance to listen to the high points of that story over the course of the next few weeks that ends in a somewhat dramatic struggle, an internal struggle with Jacob himself wrestling an angel at the banks of the Jabbok River. It is one of the most dynamic and interesting stories in the entirety of the text. And so as spiritually curious people and as human beings hungry for an understanding of why, we're forced to step back from this story and give it our fullest attention so that we might understand what is God leading us toward in this place. And as we engage in a complete look at the story of Jacob throughout the course of the narrative, and as we step back and we look at the story as a whole, as we look at the story as a whole from that beginning until the end that is so central to our faith, we're forced to an understanding of we take this strange middle ground as spiritual people, as Christian people, we're directed to straddle a more moderated space, this space of holding Friday and Sunday in each hand. Without Friday, Sunday never happens. And Sunday most certainly is not birthed without narrating the very real experience of Friday the suffering and the struggle that we engage as humanity. <clears throat> now, what we also contend with as people who are seeking this middle way, a way that I would describe as integrated rather than moderated, those of us who seek this middle way are forced to contend with this other mystical and practical um, gravitational force that tends to want to, to numb or dull our experience as human beings. And so in our search for meaning, we are beset with temptations to be distracted from that integrating work to begin with. If I were to describe practically today, like, okay, Jimmy, like, what are you talking about, man? Like, what, like, integration between joy and struggle, those two things are at opposite one from another. If I were to describe to you a real world practical example of an integrated experience, one that is grounded in spirituality, I would tell the story like this. It would look just like this. It would look like me being down in the basement of the browsing by and saying, Hi, my name is Jimmy, and I am an alcoholic. 
that thing which was killing me at some point, that thing which was the greatest struggle of a human being's life, has somehow, in a confusing and glorious and beautiful way, become so integrated with joy that I find myself in this center position of integration, of being able to hold that hard reality of my past with the beautiful reality of a present that we live in the present moment one day at a time. It's not that one is past-based and one is future-based. It's, it's an integrated experience in the very present moment. The story that we have, the story that we begin today through the life and lens of this patriarch Jacob, this story that we celebrate here at this table every week, the story of Jesus who is bringing us together through both metaphorical and literal brokenness is a story of integration. It's, the, it's our trajectory as human beings to be able to hold these two things together in a brilliant and beautiful way. Over the course of the Lenten period, and I'm, you know, so many preachers, so many of us preachers, um, we talk about it. We describe the theory of what these stories and what this theology and what this institution puts forward. But we struggle to offer really practical advice around it. But let me just remind us, let me reach back to the season of Lent and remind us, if you are a person who is seeking that integrated space, as so many of us are, let me give you a practical step. It does not begin with a victory. It does not begin with you achieving and winning. It begins from a place of radical surrender of accepting a position, an understanding in life. And it's not something that we ever figure out. It's something that we feel out. So if you're still reading those books and you're still listening to those podcasts and you're still interviewing Jimmy or Brian or Mary or Travis, I would encourage you just to get into your heart and feel these hard feelings. Stop thinking about them. Stop trying to figure it out. Just get to that point of radical acceptance, of, of feeling those, those feelings that are weighing you down. That practical advice is this moment of surrender. It's a white flag moment. It's not a victory flag moment. It is a face to the ground knees on the floor experience. Here's the problem 
with this reality. There is so much numbness in our culture. There's so much anesthesia in one way or another that we feed ourselves, that we feed one to another. There's so much numbness in our culture that this reality, this reality that is available to all of us, this reality that we were built for, that we were made for, this reality doesn't scale. It just doesn't. It makes you weird. I remember telling Cindy when, when we moved into our apartment um, in Alexandria, Virginia, for me to start my first year of seminary. I remember sharing like a vulnerable concern with Cindy on the couch. Because um, when we met, I was like a relatively cool, like long-haired frat guy, which is a little shameful, but it is my shameful reality. Um, and here I was devoting myself to this course of study, and I remember sharing with her, I was like, golly, I mean, like, what if I become a total Jesus freak? And I think she said something like, I mean, in your own kind of peculiar way, you already are, but <laughs> like, we're not really worried about that. Just like, you know, get over yourself and get into it one day at a time. <clears throat> it does make us weird. It doesn't necessarily scale. It's not something that each of us and all of us for so many reasons and probably mostly trauma um, just can't engage. But here's what I would offer, not to all of us, but each of us. You were built for this integrated life. It is the most fundamental part of your design. You are beloved of God. Belovedness is sewn into your identity and at the same time, we all, each of us, every single one of us, struggle to live up to that reality. So, you know, if you force me to admit it, are we broken sinners? We are. We are both beloved and broken. And the work that we have before us today, tomorrow, the next day, is to find a way in our own way to integrate that reality so that we might fully inherit the experience that God designed for us. Amen.